Our next lecture is going to be given by Father John Carchi. He's the rector and president and assistant professor in the Department of Biblical Studies and Homiletics at Mundelein Seminary, the University of St. Mary of the Lake. He holds a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Chicago, right here. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have him. PhD in astrophysics from the University of Chicago. Uh, ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago in 2002. Father Karchi previously served as director of the Shield Catholic Center at Northwestern University and is the author of Wisdom Epistemology in the Psalter, a study of Psalms 1, 73, 90, and 107. He has us for the next hour, so if you could help me, let's go ahead and welcome him. Hey, thanks. Great. Yeah, it is great to be back here uh, again, spent many hours in this building. I don't have to worry about offending the priests, unlike uh, Megan, so that's good. I want to just start by showing a little clip that kind of spans the sciences. It'll show you practicing sciences, scientists in a number of different fields, put together by the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, and it just gives you a little window into kind of what inspires scientists working today. I mean, somebody mentioned in the, uh, the questions last time the scientific method, and probably that's something a lot of us are exposed to in high school or even earlier. And that's helpful, that's a helpful construct, but to be brutally honest, that's not necessarily the way scientists really do their work. I mean, they're passionate, they take hunches, you know, things inspire them, and a lot of it isn't just necessarily cut and dried things that you might see in a published paper. So, a little short clip, but let's take a look at it. Okay, so if there's one thing that I can leave you with or that I hope to leave you with just from our short time together today, it's to just disavow yourself, to get beyond any kind of sense if you have it, and I don't want to assume that you do, but a lot of people do, that there's you know, some kind of fundamental disconnect between science and faith or science and the way uh, humanities may look at the world. A lot of people think they're in conflict. I imagine that's not the bulk of you, but certainly people that you know think they're in conflict. But we ought to be able to say more than that. And I, I just briefly want to go back to the, the hypothetical relationship we were hearing about, right? With, was it Brian was the guy in the example? Is, she still, is Megan still here? All right, so Megan and Brian. Well, I can't tell you about my own relationship, so I've got to reach out for something. Um, <laughs> what I'd like to suggest you know, without sounding too weird about it, is that you might say, well, the way you try and understand that or, or analyze it or break it down, you know, well, we should look to the philosophers and we should look to the poets. Um, that's the way you begin to try and sort out what's going on in something as complex as a human relationship. But I would also like to suggest that's a very well-defined problem in some sense for how do scientists begin to look at that without getting goofy? So I, I'm not talking about, well, let me measure the hormones when they're on their first date or something like that. That's not what I mean. But I simply mean, if you're a person of faith and you take what we say about God seriously, then there's a lot that if you think the way a scientist thinks, that you can bring into things like your human relationships, like the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And so rather than try and wow you with a lot of things about the universe and then just back off and say, and God is responsible for all of that, and that's fine, that can be very inspiring, but I really want to make it a little more pragmatic in the sense of, is there a way that scientists think about the world, a way that scientists engage mystery, a way scientists sit in the presence of awe 
and how they go about that that might actually be helpful how we as people of faith might think and talk about our faith. Because as I was just going through my training as a scientist, my love for science, and my experience of being Catholics, born and raised Catholic, I increasingly found that sometimes people talk about their faith in a way that can be a little bit rough around the edges. And just thinking about it the way a scientist thinks about mystery, I've just found to be very fruitful. And you may find it as well. So is my own story. Well, there I was, right? I worked in uh, early universe cosmology. Uh, see if you have a sitcom named after what you do with your life. But there we were, um, worked on, interestingly enough, a lot of the things they talk about, but more specifically, models of galaxies in the early universe. Okay? And that was fascinating to me. Ever since I was a little boy, I was fascinated with just looking up at the sky, you know, first just looking at the moon, and then when I could get a telescope, begin to see images online. What was a real powerful moment for me, though, and maybe some of you even do this, is one time I was in church, and they put out the call, they needed help for Eucharistic ministers, bringing the Blessed Sacrament to the Catholics in the hospital. It was the hospital over there, just a couple blocks away, or maybe it was over there, the University of Chicago. Lots of Catholics there, always a need to bring the Eucharist. And really, for the first time in my life, I started encountering people with serious chronic illnesses. Um, certainly, there had been things in my family or friends once in a while, but now it was every day. Every day, I was walking into rooms, and just by you know, the luck of the draw, that's not the right word to use, but I was on the oncology ward. So I was with people who had very serious illnesses, and many of them were in the process of dying. And that was nothing I had ever experienced before, certainly nothing that any of my training had prepared me for. And that really, for me, was the first regular encounter with a kind of awe and wonder that, frankly, put the other awe and wonder to shame. And I just found myself over and over again asking, what, what's going on here? What am I in the presence of? And there's lots of amazing, wonderful writings, you know, about death and dying from a clinical perspective, from a poetic perspective, from a philosophical perspective. And at the end of the day, there you are, you're eyeball to eyeball with someone in the last stages of their life. And maybe they're a young mother and their little children are right there. You know, spouses are there, people frustrated. Why am I here? Why, why did this happen to me? How is God's desire possibly mixed up with all of this? And I'm sitting there, not with answers to any of those questions, you know, wishing I'd been assigned to the broken arm wing of the hospital or something like that. But there we were. And of course, what I had that wasn't just in my head to give them was the Eucharist, okay? Plus, it's the thing I'd grown up with since second grade, made my first communion. I know how many thousands of times I'd received Eucharist, you know? Um, I do spend a little more time in church than at the gym, but, you know, not many, not much more. Go to the gym, it's good for you. Um, but I had there something that just spoke for itself, right? Lots of amazing things, lots of beautiful theology. Um, that, that's what I spend my life doing now. But just to have the presence there, it was actually helpful that I didn't know how to talk about it in a very sophisticated way. Because what I witnessed, my awe and wonder, was that these people, most of whom didn't spend their lives in church, didn't spend their time reading theology, all they knew was that they were facing really the greatest struggle, crisis, and mystery of their lives, 
And here was this blessed sacrament that, yeah, they'd heard about since they were kids. That's the body and blood of Christ. But what I was witnessing was an extraordinary power, right, in this blessed sacrament that went beyond the conversations that we had, that went beyond what they even would have said was going on. And again, you know, I'd go back to my lab and I'd sit with my galaxies and black holes, and, and those are fascinating things. But increasingly, the awe and wonder in those encounters is what was drawing me in. But it really only happened because I was there, right? I wasn't just walking along thinking, well, what's it like to have cancer, you know? Um, I would find out much more graphically than I ever imagined. But it was that encounter face to face. And then I could go back and say, for me, to Calvert House, where maybe some of you have been, you'll go to Mass at Bond Chapel. You know, and then I could begin to say, as it really started in high school, but now in college as a young adult, well, what is there in the tradition? What is there in the theology that I haven't spent enough time with? All the things that you guys have a wonderful head start on. Because that's the way a scientist thinks. If a scientist encounters awe or wonder, right, they don't just throw up their hands and go, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. There's nothing we can do. You know, they, they claw their way along, like that guy climbing the rock, you know? You say, what is it that I can hold on to? What is it that I absolutely know as my starting point? And now how can I go just a little bit further? That's the way a scientist thinks, whether they believe in God or not. So, a little before I got into thinking about all this stuff, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II, probably the Pope in the modern era who you know, gave more thought, uh, at least in a public way. I mean, Benedict, Pope Benedict treats this a lot. But he really engaged the scientific community. And around about this time, he wrote a letter, it's online, pull it up sometime, to the director of the Vatican Observatory. How many of you know that the Vatican runs its own observatory? Okay, good. They've done a lot better with their press and PR, so it, it's better known now. But for a long time, nobody even knew they existed. But that goes back hundreds of years. You know, the, the church has always been fascinated with astronomy uh, in particular. And, you know, I'm not even going to get into Galileo and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I always like to say a little truth goes a long way and a little lie goes a lot farther. So, if you ever really want to uncover some time, well, where is the church in Galileo? You know, go look it up. But the Vatican has always been fascinated with the larger universe that we live in. And so in way back in, 90, in 88, John Paul II wrote a letter to the director of the Vatican Observatory. Uh, the Jesuits run that observatory. So there is still a building in Rome. If you've ever been to Rome, you know you can't see much at night from Rome except you know, illuminated smog and stuff. Does anyone know where the actual operating telescope that the Vatican Observatory runs is? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, University of Arizona, excellent. Um, so there is a, a big, you know, the real thing, um, and the Jesuit astronomers and others as well use it. So even that might help you, you know, dispel if you encounter a skeptic about the church and science. Maybe just start by telling them, do you know that you know, the, the Catholic Church runs a world-class telescope observatory out of the University of Arizona. But here's what he says. I realize I can't read that, but he's talking about faith and science. Religion and science must preserve their own autonomy and distinctiveness, right? Listen to those words, autonomy, distinctiveness. Um, religion is not founded on science, nor is science an extension of religion. 
right? Yeah, they're not founded on each other. They're, they respect each other, but they're separate. Each should possess its own principles, pattern of procedures, diversities of interpretation, and its own conclusions, right? Each has their own way of being in the world. While each can and should support the other as distinct dimensions of a common human culture, right? Faith and reason, they're supporting a common human culture. Neither ought to assume that it forms a necessary premise for the other. And I remember when I found this letter, on the one hand, I was so happy that my pope was engaging faith and science at this level, and at the same time feeling disappointed, you know? Now, don't get me wrong. St. John Paul II does not mean my help for anything, but I still remember feeling disappointed because I thought, in my own heart, there was a lot more than just sort of polite coexistence. In my own heart, I continually found myself going back to the foundations of science and going back to the foundations of faith and noticing all these intertwinings, interconnections at a level beyond simply saying, well, God made everything and, and scientists look at everything, so you know, that's how they go together. There's an epistemological connection, right? How we think about things, um, how we process data, but really how we process uh, mystery. Okay, how do we encounter and talk about and explore and poke and prod that awe and that wonder? And there I think there's a lot more in common with these two realms than people often realize. Um, so here's an example of a very pragmatic question about this interface between faith and science. And a lot of people see it as kind of a cute question and it's turned up in a lot of memes and things like that. But it comes out of a question that somebody asked um, Pope Francis, and you go all the, I mean, Aquinas dabbled in this question a little bit, not exactly this question, but it has a long pedigree. But it's this whole idea of, would or should you baptize an alien, okay? Um, now let's just sit with that for a minute, because in our lifetime, certainly in your lifetime, it's entirely possible we may find life outside of planet Earth. So what would be some ways you'd start to answer that question, okay? What, what, what might you want to know if, in fact, we should or shouldn't baptize an alien? Yeah? Do they have a rational soul? Do they have a rational soul? Do they have a soul? And is it rational? Great, great point. Yeah? Were they created in God's image? Were they created in God's image? Okay. Now, if they were, how would that affect whether you think they should be baptized or if they weren't? Okay, we don't baptize animals the way we baptize, right? Okay. Hey, dogs are people too. No, no, they aren't, right? And that's a question that comes up a lot, well, from little kids anyway. Does my dog go to heaven? Yes, what were you going to say? Uh, do they have previous beliefs? Do they have previous beliefs. previous beliefs, right? Okay, so notice what's going on here. There's this whole question of do they have the capacity to reason? Do they have a capacity for right and wrong? Do they have that basic dignity that inheres with being in the image and likeness of God? Those are all great questions, but that's the way a scientist thinks, okay? It's the way theologians think. I'm not pretending that there's, you know, mutually exclusive. But you don't just have to kind of say, well, you know, that's sort of a cute question. But another thing you have to know is whether or not there are aliens in the first place, okay? So some questions. Do aliens even exist? And then, are there other planets besides Earth? Because if they do exist, you know, they're probably not just free-floating out there. Are they grounded someplace? Do these planets support life if they exist? 
And then what's a baptizable life form, as you guys were saying? Is there free will? Is there a unique identity? Do these things have a sense of right or wrong? How about this one? Do you need a Martian Jesus? You know? Or is the Jesus that we know and love good enough? But that's a really important question, right? And that's exactly the kind of question that a scientist, whether she believed in God or not, would want to know an answer to if you're exploring should you baptize an alien, right? And, and so what I'm trying to get across here is don't worry initially about whether scientists believe in God or they're Richard Dawkins or, you know, uh, worry eventually about that a lot. But initially, just let them help you say, how am I going to get at this question? What are sort of the, the leading questions that get me to the bigger question? What are some of the things I need to sort out? Because a lot of times they can be really, really helpful at focusing, you know, how we think. And they don't have a monopoly on that, but... So, for example, do other planets exist? Um, I'm going to assume that most of you know by now, we do know other planets exist. Does anyone have an idea of how many planets we believe exist right now based on actual observation? Um, greater than 100, raise your hand. Okay, greater than 1,000. Less than two. <laughs> All right. About 4,000 right now. Okay? And they're often broken down by planetologists, that's what they're called, um, into gas planets and rocky planets like Earth. But here's the thing you've never seen, unless it was an artist's rendition, you've never seen the surface of a non solar planet. Okay? You've never seen a picture of that. So, where do these astronomers get off saying there's 4,000? planets around other stars, okay? That's a great question. We can sit in our armchair and wonder whether or not there's other life or there might be other planets, and we can say, well, we know there's so many galaxies and a galaxy has so many stars, it's pretty likely that, you know, there are going to be other planets, but that's not good enough, right? It's not good enough. We shouldn't have to just now think of theology, right? We shouldn't just have to sit back and say, well, you know, is there a God or isn't there a God? And some great give and take last time. There's historical precedence for this. I mean, somebody's been faking it really good for 2,000 years if there never was a Jesus and he didn't have an impact. Um, but you can ask very particular kinds of questions to begin to get at very broad concepts. And so the primary way that we find planets today is simply by saying, if I look at a star and there are planets circling it, then when the planet goes in front of the star, it should somehow block the light, right? When the moon goes between the Earth and the sun, you get a full solar eclipse. That really blocks the light. Well, planets, you know, are going to be much, much smaller, and it's much, much further away. So you don't see that, and for a long time, nobody could actually measure when the light from a star decreased. But when you get really sensitive telescopes, which is what we have today, here's what you begin to see. Now, maybe you all can't see it, because it's not running. So here's a planet going around a star, and this is the light that we're measuring. Okay? If, if that thing happens to be line on with our line of sight, then lo and behold, you get a dip. Okay? But you never see the planet. You never see the planet. All you see is this decrease in the light from the star. And now you've got to decide what's going on. Well, maybe the star just decreased in its luminosity. Maybe there was something going on in the, the reactions in the star. Okay? To be able to say, no, I think there's something like a planet here. A lot more goes into it. But at the end of the day, nobody has actually seen that planet. 
Okay, what we're working on is a lot of you know, evidence that supports that conclusion, but at the end of the day, all you're doing is taking little pieces that you have a pretty good handle on, like how I measure light from another star, how I might discern the way a planet would behave, and that's how I'm ultimately making my conclusion. And a lot of times in theology, it's similar processes. You know, it's using supporting evidence, if I can use that term. You know, when I'm walking into the hospital room with the person who's dying from cancer, how is it that they may come to believe that there is a God, that this God cares about them, that this wafer that I'm bringing to them is truly the body and blood of Christ? Okay, well, there's no singular way that they're coming to that conclusion. But all these pieces of supporting evidence are coming up, and not necessarily a conclusion that's going to convince other people, but it's a conclusion that's meaningful for them. And once again, at the end of the day, I can't force you to believe that there's a planet going around that star unless and until we can all get in a rocket ship and go out there. And I guarantee you that's not going to happen probably in your lifetimes. But collectively, I can make a lot of arguments as to why that's a very reasonable conclusion. Um, well, you might also say, okay, if we have this Martian, you know, they've got to be they got to be human, maybe, or at least in the image and likeness of God, if they're going to be worthy of being baptized. It's okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I'll just start with myself. I mean, the image and likeness of God, and if I were a dog, I wouldn't deserve to be baptized. So I'm human. How, how do I know it's a dog and not a person? Well, obviously, I suppose, for most dogs. But, you know, I could go in there. I could look at their cellular structure and so forth. But what is a person? How much of you is you, if I can put it that way? Because something we know today that Augustine wouldn't have known, and Aquinas, and, and probably even G.K. Chesterton, is that what is you is a pretty complex ecosystem. In addition to your human cells, you have what's called the microbiota. Bacteria, fungi, viruses. Are any of you really into the biological sciences, maybe even working in labs yet or something? Okay, you may find yourself there. Um, well, these are not human cells per se, but we need them. We absolutely need them. They're in our gut mostly. They allow us to digest food. There's some speculation they're involved in our thought processes. Without them, your body would not function. Okay, here's a question for you. When you step on the scale, what percentage of what the scale says is due to these foreign cells. What, what percentage do you think is this microbiota as opposed to your human cells? Yeah. I hear 50%. Wow, 50%. You really think when you get on the scale, only 50% of you. That'd be great for wrestlers, right? Trying to make weight. You'd just be, oh, no problem. Awesome. What's your name? Lucas. Lucas. Awesome job, Lucas. It's actually slightly more than 50%. You know, the ratio I'll get a little mathy on you, but it's about 1.3 to 1, okay? So just think about that for a minute. So what is you? Because you could imagine the pre-microbiota theologian saying, well, a human being, obviously. That's who we baptize. We baptize a human being. Well, what's a human being? You pull some person out of the audience. Here, this is a human being. Yeah, well, 50% of them is fungus, okay? And that shouldn't, you know, rattle our cage so much. Maybe you like mushrooms, I don't know. But, but what it should force us to do is begin to think about, well, okay, 
Now, the theology, the dogma, right, that, that we're given, that, that's unquestionable, that yes, we are in the image and likeness of God. But what is in the image and likeness of God? And so this is always going to be where science can be so helpful to faith. Rather than thinking of science chipping away at what theology can do or does God exist, I like to explore an area of the conversation that is rarely talked about. And that's how can science be incredibly helpful to theology? Above and beyond just saying, oh, isn't it an amazing world? You know, look through my telescope. God must exist. I mean, do it. I love looking through telescopes just to be blown away. But here's a great example of where science is giving the theologian a piece of information that she or he, you know, couldn't have possibly imagined before. And what I'll often say is good science helps theologians hone and focus the questions that they ask. Good science helps theologians focus the questions that they ask, and it helps them focus the answers that they come up with or derive. Right? There's no reason to be afraid of science if you're a person of faith. Take it, right? The Catholic Church has always done that. There's some kind of knowledge in the world, I want to suck it up, because somehow it's involved with what God is manifesting in the world. And how about this last one? Do we need a Martian Jesus? Well, science can even help us with this. I mean, primarily th theology, right? Talk about memes. Someone did that. Right. You didn't hear any of this stuff from your Catholic priest. Just remember that. Or say it was a Jesuit or someone, but I'm, uh, I'm at Mundelein. We're the diocesan priest. Okay. All we do is cartoons. They get telescopes. So... We have the Jesus, right? We've got Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and that's all for most time anyone ever worried about. Yeah, Jesus is Jesus, right? And he's there for, for planet Earth. And for most of the time, or you know, when Jesus was walking the Earth, nobody thought about planet Earth like that. But that's what you need. That's all we need. Now, some people are even scandalized that he's just so localized, right? 30-some years in this tiny little region of the whole globe. But nevertheless, we would say, that's all you need. Well, boom, now we've got Martians, right? We've got life, and for the sake of argument, let's say it's intelligent and, and all the rest of it, it, it's rational. Do I need a new Jesus or a new incarnate being for all those other places? And here's where our theology comes to our aid. Because, of course, it isn't just the man, Jesus of Nazareth, right? He came, he lived, he died, and he's not coming back. We've got to be clear on that. And some people get scandalized when I say it. No, he's not. Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is not coming back. Okay, if you want to argue me on that one, you know, we're, we're dabbling in heresy there. So he's gone. Um, but who is eternal, right? It, Christ, the risen Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Okay, always was, is, always will be. And insofar as the second person of the Trinity is not confined by a little region on the globe of planet Earth, what was accomplished there, the whole salvific action, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that ought to be applicable to all of creation. Okay? So here's where the, the theologian and the scientist are actively engaging one another. What the scientist can say to the theologian is, hey, wait a minute, I, I can show you lots of life that isn't on planet Earth. Now, what are you going to do with that, theologian? And the theologian then is forced to think, gee, I, I never really worried about that one before. You know, I, I had Jesus and Israel and, and Earth, and that all seemed to be good. 
Now we've got this other life. Oh, wait a minute. You know, it's not just Jesus of Nazareth, of course. This is a cosmic. Now, that's hardly new to theology. You'll find that image of the cosmic Christ goes all the way back to the earliest days of the church. But maybe for most people just walking the streets who maybe are getting a little rattled by this idea of, gosh, if we find life on other planets, what does that mean for our faith? There's a beautiful blending of the two disciplines. So, faith and science, right? A matter of focusing. That good science can focus the questions that theologians pose, and good science can focus the interpretation of the answers that theologians derive. And by good science, I simply mean honest science, right? You're not cooking the books. You're not fudging the data. Um, you can have dishonest theologians as well, right? So it's just rigor. It's saying, with as much honesty as I have, this is what I know, and, and this is why I hold it. Um, okay, let's look at another example of how scientists think, the epistemology, okay? And then we'll use that to be intertwining with the way theologians maybe get at some questions. So, real simple question with some maybe not so simple always answers. Where do swirls come from? Okay, so there's a little kid, it's one of those swirly flower things, and we know that if she blows on that, the pinwheel's gonna go around, and you might say, fine, that's where swirls come from. Um, that stage, though, maybe that's just a, a stuffed doll, maybe it's not a real person, so we can prove ourselves that it's actually in motion. But it's the same process. Think like a scientist, right? Don't get, don't get caught up in the pig. Think about the scientist. It's not only a human being blowing on this object, it can, it can be any wind, because that's not immediately obvious, right, if you just didn't grow up in this world. Okay, it doesn't have to be someone blowing up. What I need is I need the rush of wind past this thing, right? Whether it's a pig hanging out of a car or it's a little girl blowing on it with her breath. So what I'm already doing is making some generalizations based on what I observe. Where do swirly things come from? Okay, uh, I don't remember which hurricane this is. It's a fairly recent one though. It might've been Irma. There's a hurricane very similar kind of manifestation. I'm seeing this swirly pattern. Well, hurricanes, right? I, I don't know if any, have any of you ever lived through a hurricane? You know, obviously not this part of the woods, but I have a lot of family in Florida. They're terrifying. But it's clear that it's a very similar phenomenon to one degree. It's the wind moving through matter, right? And when you get this satellite image, you see that swirly pattern. Well, obviously this isn't due to some kid blowing on the atmosphere or to some pig holding the state of Florida out the window. So there's something that's similar, right? Think like a scientist. I'm applying certain similar qualities, and yet I'm using it to talk about things that clearly are dissimilar in a way, okay? Think about all the different ways you encounter God. From the time you were a little kid, you know, the, the age of that little girl blowing on the pinwheel, and somebody told you about God. Oh, God is good, God loves you. You know, and so it would be very natural to think, well, God loves me, and God is good, and God is all-powerful, so probably nothing bad will ever happen. And then, boom, the first bad thing happens. And then a second one, and then a third one. You know, and now you've got to start reasoning, well, how do I put this together with everything I've been told about God? Because a lot of good things happen as well. And your little brain, right, as you're growing up and maturing, right, it's trying to piece all this together. But probably as a four or five-year-old, you weren't dialogue partners with a lot of theologians. I mean, maybe you were. Maybe you wouldn't be here on a Saturday morning if you weren't. But, and I hope you are, 
but it's not the way we often talk to little kids about God. Um, they can take a lot more than we think, though. So let's keep going. Here's another swirl, right? This is a galaxy. If you didn't know it was a galaxy, you might think it's another hurricane. Same kind of swirling pattern. Well, we know that the pinwheel is because wind or breath is blowing on this thing. We know that the hurricane is because somehow air is circulating, but must be for a very different reason. It would be, in t but we can touch that, right? We can touch the pinwheel. We can touch the hurricane. Ain't nobody's going to touch this, right? This is so far out. All we can do is observe it from very far away. And yet you see the swirling pattern. But it would be entirely reasonable, based on what we know of those other things, to say, well, this must be spinning around somehow. You know, it's probably not the wind blowing it, but somehow this must be spinning, okay? That'd be a really, really intelligent guess. And it would be really, really wrong, okay? And it's only fairly recently that we know that is a wrong interpretation. But boy, it sure looks like the others. And you get that spiral behavior in a spiral galaxy with something called density waves that move through the gas and dust. And you sort of get a, when the gas condenses, you get bright stars, brighter stars, and we don't go into all the, the physics of it, but that's not primarily due to a rotating bunch of stuff. In fact, if we could see what isn't illuminated, this would be pretty, pretty much uniform, not those spirals where all the matter is contained. Okay, so we've looked at pinwheels, we've looked at hurricanes, we've looked at galaxies. So we're just, you might say we're kind of climbing the ontological ladder. So where do swirls really come from? And in all seriousness, where you really learn about swirls is from puppies who don't have souls and you shouldn't baptize. Oh no. Okay, it's cute, but there's no wind blowing those dogs, right? I hope there's no wire strung through them, forcing them to go. And it's a very similar kind of pattern, right? They weren't trained. They're too young to have been trained. Yeah, they almost, maybe they get going a little bit. All right, they gave it their best. Oh, there they go. No puppies were harmed in the making of that video. Um, but what's going on and why that's important is because what's happening is simply each little element, we'll call them a puppy, is interacting with its nearest neighbor, okay? No one has orchestrated that event. The only thing that's going on is they're hungry, they want to eat, and they're constrained in where their food source is. Okay, so that's the boundary that's set up. But each puppy only knows that it's nudging around with the one next to it. And it's not gonna get a meal if it can't behave in a certain way. Okay, that's called nearest neighbor interaction. And that's the foundation for an awful lot of particularly modern science. And the reason that's important, okay, is because I'm gonna show you just part of another clip. These are not smoke clouds, these are birds. These are starlings. 
There's tens of thousands of birds there. And this is over the span of several blocks. Okay. What is, there's no way in the world this bird is telling that bird, hey, make a left turn and hey, go up now. It's impossible that they're communicating with each other. And you're getting this incredibly complex structured behavior. Because what's going on there is very similar to what the puppies are doing. Sounds like the ocean, right? That's actually like from a new wave video you can download just to soothe you looking at the birds. Um, but what it is, is each bird is interacting with its nearest neighbor, okay? And a lot of people have studied this. And it's just by paying attention to what's going on closest to you that you can actually propagate out these incredibly complex behaviors that look as if they're the result of incredible orchestration, okay? Think about that sometime in terms of how we learn about God, how we talk about God, how we share information about God with other people. I would say in my life as a minister, this is where the action is. I mean, amazing podcasts out there, all kinds of great stuff, talks, right? You can go to all kinds of symposium. But when the rubber hits the road, right? When your mom has been diagnosed with cancer, when you didn't get into the school you wanted to get into, when you know, that relationship you hoped would go somewhere has just crashed and burned, all those moments of our lives when we're really wondering, you know, what's the purpose of it all? We tend to have very nearest neighbor type interactions. And if you talk about sharing your faith and what does that look like, um, maybe just think a little bit about this idea of the power of the face-to-face, one-on-one encounter and how that begins to propagate through a community. I'm showing you all of that stuff as a way of saying science is grounded on faith. Not necessarily, and for most scientists they would say not at all, religious beliefs, but real beliefs nonetheless. If I'm going to decide that that dip in the luminosity of the star is due to a planet, that's because I'm going to use the fact that I think when a planet is there in front of the star, it's going to behave in a certain way. If I see the way birds interact with each other, then I'm going to say, if I believe that that's the case, then following from that, I should get all this other behavior from the whole flock of birds. But I can't go up to each bird and interview it and say, hey, are you doing this because your neighbor's doing it? It'd just be impossible, okay? So what are some of the beliefs? Well, that the universe is orderly and rational, okay? So I look at a snowflake and I say, this is frozen water. And I study that snowflake and so I learn something about how water behaves when it's frozen. Well, from that I make a statement about an ice cube. Even just one ice cube, right? I can't study every little crystal in the ice cube. It would take forever. But I can say, if I know about snowflakes, I'm going to assume that I know something about ice cubes. I can generalize because I believe the universe is orderly and rational. I can't prove that by going to every frozen water molecule in the ice cube, but I'm going to make that assumption. And every scientist works off of that assumption. And by the way, now I can generalize to a frozen lake or if I see what looks like frozen water on Mars, I'm going to assume that I know something about that because I was able to study a snowflake right here. We don't even think about that, but it's inherent to the scientific discipline, right? It is a belief. 
right? Not all that different in terms of its power from your beliefs of faith. Another one, belief that the order of the universe is open to the human mind. Doesn't have to be that way necessarily, okay? So when I'm looking through my microscope and I'm looking at the very small, I'm not being fooled, right? A la some of the skeptics. I'm not being tricked. Um, Maxwell's demon, if you know who that is, you know, this little demon, James Clark Maxwell, a famous physicist said, you know, what if there's this little demon mess messing with the atoms every time I look at them? Well, if that were the case, I couldn't do anything. So I'm going to assume that as I perceive the world, my mind is actually able to draw useful information out of it. If I'm looking, all right, in our, in our local, talking with another human being. If I look very far away, okay, I can poke the thing under my microscope. I can't touch what's out there in the sky. Here's another one. Belief that there is unity and uniformity across the universe. This is the biggest assumption of anyone who does planetary science or astronomy or cosmology, right? So if I pick up a rock here on Earth, I can study it, right? What's the mineral makeup, all the rest of it. What's the farthest that human beings have gone? Like literally physically gone, and, you know, and stood and touched, how far from Earth? Anyone? What would you say? Yeah. The moon, that's right, which isn't very far at all. We send satellites that, you know, way, way out. We look very far back, but it's the moon is as far as you've actually been able to go. And there we were able to say, yes, we pick up a rock, we bring it back, we study it. It's like the stuff here on Earth. But nobody's gone even close to the nearest star in our own galaxy, let alone another galaxy. And yet you're never going to be able to do astronomy unless you're working on the assumption that there is unity and uniformity across the universe. So that the rock that I study here in Chicago is more or less the same substance as the rock on the moon, is more or less the same substance as any part of the universe that I look at. But I could be totally wrong about that, you know? Tomorrow we could discover that whole thing's been turned upside down. But we have to work off of that belief. And that's a belief that nobody is going to empirically prove. So never let someone tell you that science is not grounded on beliefs of its own, okay? And, and that doesn't mean we have to make decisions about God, necessarily. Um, just within the realm of science itself. So this idea, the universe is orderly and rational, the order of the universe is open to the human mind, unity and uniformity across the universe, all of these are fully compatible with the biblical worldview, right? That you have an intelligent creator who is in some way, shape, or form responsible for what we see. Um, and those are deeper conversations, and I'm sure you've had some of those but compatible, right? That, that's the most I can say is compatible or consonant with. And this is where a lot of scientists get a little edgy because they think, oh, you know, are you trying to tell me that uh, only God could explain what I'm seeing? Well, just based on these arguments, no, that's not a, you know, a cut and dried argument. And a lot of times people of faith get a little edgy because they're saying, well, are you trying to you know, disprove the existence of God because I can show all these things without needing to have God, at least as they think? but it's the consonants of the compatibility. And a lot of times the dialogues don't even get to this level because there's fear or there's an assumed conflict. So what does the Bible say about creation? There you go, in the beginning, Genesis 1. I'm always shocked by how often, even today, people will come up to me at times, you know, card-carrying Catholics coming out of Mass 
And, you know, Father, you know, just, I got this big issue with the church. Why does the church insist the world was created in seven days? You know, we, we just know that's not the case. Um, the sort of literalistic reading of something like the book of Genesis. And I don't know how many of you are Catholic. I'm not going to assume that's everybody here. But at least in regards to the Catholic church, it is so important that we know what our church actually says about ways to read texts like Genesis 1. You know, and we do not say that we read that text in a literalistic way, that you know, Genesis 1 is a cosmology book, that you know, seven 24-hour days or six 24-hour days is when the universe was created. And you don't just have to wing it. You, know, you don't just have to say, well, I, I don't really believe that myself. I mean, we've got good teaching in the magisterium to back us up on this one. Um, but before we do that, let's look at what science says about creation. We won't watch the whole thing, but it's, uh, well, maybe science says nothing about, oh, we're in trouble. At MIT, they recently did a simulation of the early universe. And we have a pretty good idea how it started. With the Big Bang. But what happened in the 14 billion years between the Big Bang and now? How did galaxies, like our Milky Way, evolve? To test our theories, scientists at MIT have built a computer model of the universe. A simulation so complex that calculating it on a single desktop would take 2,000 years. They modeled a volume of space almost 350 million light years across, a large enough chunk to be representative of the whole universe, but detailed enough to delve into individual galaxies, a feat no other team has managed. The model doesn't just tackle the universe's huge range of scales. It also richly describes the forces at work, much better than previous attempts. Okay, I'm just going to leave that as a little bit of a teaser. You can pull the whole thing up. The point is, and, and there's a fallacy there when she said the universe was created in the Big Bang. I mean, that is absolutely not true. And it's not only not true for theological reasons, it's not true for scientific reasons, okay, that we just don't have time to go into. But don't leave here thinking that the Big Bang explains, you know, where everything comes from. Even Einstein, who is the really gave us the equations of that, understood that they don't apply all the way down to quote, time equals zero. So that's one fallacy to be cleared up. But nevertheless, we all get the basic picture that from the time of the Big Bang on, there, there's gas, there's stars, you form galaxies that took roughly 14 billion years to get to where we are now. So what in the world are you telling me about, you know, six days the world was created? And for a lot of people, when they do surveys of why people walk away from the faith, science faith science conflict is often in the top three, if not number one. And this is probably the, the top of that list, you know, what we talk about creation. Well, what does the Bible really say about creation, at least in terms of the Catholic Church? You know, a document you can download, put, off, put out by the Pontifical Biblical Commission, right? That's that formal branch of the Catholic Church that talks about the interpretation of Scripture. Inspiration and truth of sacred scripture. And it doesn't duck a question like, well, what does the Bible say about creation? How do we understand it? And so just one line out of the paragraph where they talk about that, the first creation account, Genesis 1, through its well-organized structure, describes not how the world came into being, but why and for what purpose, right? It's not a cosmology book. It's not telling you how it happened. 
but it's telling us why and how we interact with God through creation. In poetic style, using the imagery of his era, the author of Genesis shows that God is the origin of the cosmos, right? Poetic style and the imagery, there's no way the author of Genesis 1 could have known about modern cosmology. And there's no reason that we should insist that that's the case. And that doesn't mean that Genesis 1 is pointless and worthless. But that's a whole other symposium, right? As you guys read scripture, though, you know, if you have a question, never just push it aside, but dig into it, because there's an awful lot that the church says about some of these more challenging passages. Once again, science can help theologians better think about the world they live in. Um, what's that number there? I, I, I hope I counted all the zeros, but 6.02 times 10 to the 23. Call it out. Avogadro's number, okay? Um, 6.02 times 10 to the 23. You either know it and love it or hate it or you have no idea where it comes from, and that's fine. But it's the number that takes us from the microscopic world to the macroscopic world. In other words, let's all do this together. I assume you've been doing it you know, since you got up this morning, but let's take a deep breath. <sighs> the number of oxygen atoms you just inhaled and exhaled is on the order of that number. There were roughly 6 times 10 to the 23 oxygen atoms in the breath you just took, okay? Now, I'm an astronomer, so we only worry about getting things within a factor of 100 or so. so but if it's 10 to the 23, whether it's 10 to the 21 or 10 to the 25, who cares? It's an insanely large number. When I said it's the number that takes us from the microscopic to the macroscopic, that's what I mean. You know, a glass of water has about 10 to the 23 H2O molecules in it. Because that number is so ridiculously large, every time you inhale or exhale, you are taking in oxygen atoms that probably every other person who ever lived on planet Earth has taken in or out. Not all of the atoms, but at least a couple of them. Because 6 times 10 to the 23 is so huge, put it into the atmosphere, smear, smear it out over the surface of the globe, and Earth doesn't make oxygen, right? I mean, we learn that. Plants don't make oxygen. They just, they recycle it. So in every breath that you're taking, you're taking in some oxygen atoms that your grandparents had, that your great-grandparents had, that Abraham Lincoln had. This is often a calculation in, in freshman physics in college, so you can look forward to this. But oh, by the way, Jesus, okay? So now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that people almost come to blows over trying to preserve. Maybe this is where Jesus stood. Maybe this is the actual place where Jesus was. Well, would you feel differently about that if you knew that you have inside of you maybe 10,000 Jesus atoms? The very atoms that made up his body with as great a likelihood as I can say anything are inside of you. Does that change the way you think about the sacredness of yourself or the world? Yes, we're in the image and likeness of God. That's dogma. That's not to be questioned. But this is something that I think St. Augustine would have loved to know. The sacredness, you know, you have Jesus Adams inside of you. How about this? Every time you consecrate a host, right? Not that. That is not liturgical host, but just it's the only thing I could find. It's bread. Um, when you consecrate that, you know, you've got about that many, Avogadro's number, little molecules of bread. And if you know this, the surface of bread, even a consecrated host, is not solid. The little bread molecules are coming off all the time. Well, that means 
in every church you've been to, there are little, little bread consecrated host molecules around. They're in your clothing. They're on the windowsill. They're everywhere, okay? Does that change the way you think about the sacredness of place? I'm not trying to tell you that's how you should think it changes, but that's just information that the theologian has to take on and I would think enriches the way they look at the world. Um, and so just in the last uh, couple minutes, that science then introduces a precision and an honesty into the world. So if we say God has unconditional love, then you have to allow for this. There's no way to get around it, right? And the problem of evil. Theologians have been thinking about this forever, but a lot of non-theologians, you know, stuff like this can really be bothersome for them. And not everyone is gonna go to the level of investigation the theologian does. You know, letting God be God. So we say God is love, okay, blithely let that roll off the tongue. So fine, God is not this, God is not the angry God, because the data disprove that, right? I, I know as I've interacted with this God that that's not the God I know, but neither is that God, okay? And if I want God simply to be this person who you know, just solves every problem that I have, the data there stubbornly refuse to accept that. Um, so some questions that you have or, you know, the, the, th the topic is so broad, you can never touch on um, anyone's particular favorite science issue. Any of you, you know, passionate about the sciences or think you might go into it in college? Couple, maybe? Any of you think you'll write Chesterton's biography? Yeah. Um, anything else? Well, again, just the takeaway that I'd hope you have is the way a scientist encounters mystery or awe. When you look at, when the scientist looks at the black hole, doesn't just throw up her hands and say, I, I have no idea what to do with this. You take those little things that you do know, you can trust, and you say, if these things are true, then how does it take me to the next step, right? And in theology, so I'll end on the point where I talked about with Brian and, uh, with Megan and Brian, um, you know, if you say, well, how do, how do you move ahead on this? Well, you might start with the given truth. Every one of us is in the image and likeness of God. If you're a Christian, that God is a trinity of persons. So every person is in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God, which means we're wired to be in relationship. So even if Brian snubs her, that doesn't mean it was wrong for her to have extended herself. It can be hard, it can be difficult, and a lot of times when someone is struggling to have a good relationship, you know, it can start with just saying, I'm wired to be this way. And so if it didn't work out here, you know, what is it that gets me up to go and try another time? My theology insists that's the only way to be human. Just like the astronomer says, I have to believe the charge on the electron is this. I don't get to define it each day. But it's always fun for priests to talk about other people's relationships, right? Because, because we never have to deal with it. So we'll leave it at that. Good. Thank you.